0: I read a book once where the author said that early in his marriage, he and his wife had hit upon a strategy to keep their house clean. Anybody want to know what the strategy was? It had uh, it changed not only the cleanliness of their house, uh, but it changed the social and the ministry structure of their entire lives. One idea, and it changed them forever. Here's what it was. They decided that they were going to invite one family, one couple, one person over to their house eh, about every other week to their house, and I see some women nodding their heads. Uh, What happens when you're going to have company at your house? Tell me. You tidy up, right? You, you clean it up. You, you, you straighten up. You, you, you clean the bathroom. You clean places that haven't been cleaned in a while. You, you do lots of things, even though they're probably not going to notice most of it. But you clean the house. Why do we do that? Just because we want to look good? Why do we do that? Because they're company, right? Right? And, and we want to give them the greatest show of hospitality we can. We want not just to look good, but we want them to get a respite. We want them to come into our home and be able to relax in a beautiful, relaxing environment. We want them to have a safe place. We want them to enjoy themselves. We want them to be undistracted. It's not just to look good. That couple found that what what happened as the years went by was other people described them as one of the most gracious, honest, um, loving couples that the church had. And it was because both of them had grown in that ability because neither one of them wanted to do it at the beginning. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, a Pharisee, invited Jesus to his home, and that's all Jesus needed. Jesus was going to go. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, an event happens in that Pharisee's house because unlike you, that Pharisee did not prepare his home for Jesus. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet, and her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who it was and what sort of woman this was that was touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher, he said. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Do you see this woman? At this point, everybody can see this woman. She's making a spectacle of herself. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her hair, with her tears and wiped them with her hair You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's an incredible scene. It's set for yet another confrontation with the Pharisees who Jesus is having confrontation after confrontation after confrontation, and this was designed to yet be another. The Pharisee was not prepared to treat him graciously or honestly or as a friend or even as a, a, a just a common respect. He didn't provide the bowl. He didn't provide the ointment. He just opened the door. But Jesus came in. Now, the scene, you have to understand, uh, as a Pharisee, he was probably a richer man. And, And Pharisees' homes were designed in a U shape. That is, there are rooms around the U, and there was a common atrium area open to the sky, and that's where most of the year, meals would be cooked and meals would be had out there. Pillows would be brought in from the outside, and people would recline at a U-shaped table in the middle of it. As a Pharisee's house, one end of the U, that end of the U, would have been open to the street. And sometimes people would wander in and they would, they would stand on the side and they would view the conversation and listen in on the conversation that was occurring. So that's the scene. Jesus has come into the home proper, Usually there should have been somebody at the door to wash his feet, because everybody wears sandals in those days, and, and the feet were de- de- declared unclean. They, they had to be washed before you would come into the home. So somebody would be there to wash the feet, There'd at least be a bowl where you could wash your feet. But on that day, there was none for Jesus. So he just simply comes in, he sits at the table where he was invited to sit, and then the... People come in, and there is a woman who's come in. She's heard that Jesus is going to be there. That's what the text tells us in verse 37. She heard that he was going to be there, and so she brought an alabaster flask of oil. A lot of oil. Expensive oil. She's standing behind Jesus. Maybe she's one of those women who heard She's a prostitute. She's a sinner. That's code language. When, she, when it says she's a woman of the street and she's a sinner, she's a, it's code language for she's a prostitute. She's a, she's a woman who is abused by men who are irresponsible, and she sells her body to those irresponsible and vile men. Maybe she's heard the story of Jesus saving another prostitute's life who had been caught in the act of adultery and people are starting to pick up stones to stone her and Jesus intervenes. Maybe she's heard Jesus preach on the side of the hills around that region, but she hears that Jesus is going to be there and she comes in and she gets behind Jesus and Jesus is reclined around the table. Uh, If I could, I'd lay down here and I'd I'd point my feet away from the table. That's how you would eat. You would rest on one arm. You would reach for food that would be passed down the table to you. You'd pass it to the next person. And your feet would be away. And she's standing behind him. And she looks down and sees that his feet have not been washed. He's not been shown that courtesy. He's not been shown the courtesy of a guest or a friend, certainly not the courtesy of an honored guest. She begins to weep. I imagine that she might have been saying something like this How can this be? Isn't Jesus your honored guest? How is it that you have not done what is customary and offered a bowl to wash his feet? And her tears begin to fall and they fall on Jesus's feet. And suddenly she sees their tears on her feet. And she's down there on the floor washing his feet with her tears. She's beginning to cry more as she thinks about this one who forgives sinners. She has faith that he might forgive her. she didn't bring a towel. She didn't plan on washing his feet with her tears or dry. She didn't have anything. So she starts, she undoes her hair. And she begins to dry his feet with her hair. People around the table are scandalized. There's the Pharisee, and he's probably invited other Pharisees. And they're looking at, oh, doesn't he know who she is? Yeah, he knows. He's allowing her to touch He's allowing her to touch him. Doesn't he know? But she just keeps probably sniffling at this point. Her hair is probably becoming a muddy mess as she wipes off the the clay and the dust from Jesus' feet, mixing it with her her tears. It's a spectacle. And Simon begins to think. We, We get this. Simon thinks to himself, doesn't he know who she is? Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. So he turns to Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. I imagine Simon probably said it something like this. Go ahead, say it, teacher. Because he's already disrespected Jesus by not providing ointment to refresh his face at the, at the door, not providing a bowl to refresh his feet, to clean his feet. Say it, teacher. And Jesus constructs a parable right there on the spot. There's two men who are in debt to another man. And one owes 500 denarii. That's a year and a half's wages. A denarii was the the wage of a day. The other owes 50 days' wages. A month and a half versus a year and a half of wages. And the one holding the debt forgives them both. And Jesus asks one question. Which of them do you suppose loved him more? Simon doesn't have to take long. I suppose the one who forgave him, whose debt was greater. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Jesus has set the hook. Now he's going to reel in the fish. I came to your house. You offered no bowl for me to wash my feet. You gave me no anointing oil to refresh my face. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. How you did, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven her. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. I want you to, to notice that the woman in this story says absolutely nothing. Jesus says to her, "Your sins are forgiven." And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, "Who is this who even forgives sins? Good question. Only God can forgive sins in the way that Jesus does. And He said to the woman, "Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three observations. Love is fueled by forgiveness. Love is the fuel of forgiveness. Forgiveness is fuel for love. The last sentence in verse 47 is key. Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If you don't believe that you have been forgiven much, you won't love much. I find in my own life that when I find my devotion to Christ, my love for Christ, when I find that my heart is cold, when I find that my love for Christ is is waxing away, is not as firm, is not as strong, is not as fervent, is not as devoted, is not as passionate as, it, as I know it should be or as it once was. All I have to do is remind myself of how much I have been forgiven. I need to spend some time meditating and thinking about what it means that I have been forgiven much If you believe that you have been forgiven much, you will love much. If you believe that you have been forgiven little, you will love little. That's what Jesus says. You want to know how to love much? Learn to forgive others and remember that you have been forgiven. When we know that we are forgiven, we begin to become great lovers. Do you know that? Do you experience that in your life? Do, do you experience that, that when you know and value how much you have been forgiven, that is when you love Jesus most? I had a great time driving here this morning. It's Two hours to get here from where I was in Watsika. I had a great time because I was listening to worship music the whole time. And the whole time I was being reminded that Jesus, the holiest person in the universe, forgave me. Who I am not holy, and he is holy, holy, holy. And he has forgiven me. And I kept thinking of all the things that Jesus has forgiven me of, and my worship just began to ascend. Because I was being reminded that I have been forgiven much. One of the biggest problems for Christians in America today is that they have forgotten how much they have been forgiven. Here's a second observation. It's similar. Weak love is the result of a weak appreciation of our forgiveness. When my love for God or others is weak, I need to stoke the fires of of my soul with the memory of my forgiveness. I, I need to gaze at the sacrifice of Christ, knowing that he died for us and he rose for us and he's preparing a place for us and he's coming back for us, knowing that he owes us nothing but loves us anyway. We, all of us, all of us who believe in Christ, need to stoke those fires of passion for Christ. How many of you kids know that your parents love you? You better raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, kids and older children, that means all of us, do you sometimes forget how much your parents love you? I saw one of those ubiquitous television police shows some time ago. They're always on there's always another police show on television, right? And there was a scene where a, a female cop was with her daughter, teenage daughter, a roll your eye daughter. Does that does that make sense? She's at that stage where, oh mom, and just rolls her eyes. And they had to go to a bank. And the daughter had to come into the bank with them. And the bank, as they were in there, and mom is trying to help her daughter and help her daughter with some decisions that uh, coming up with school, and they had to go to the bank. And at that point, a robber came in to rob the bank. The mother steps in and takes a bullet for the daughter. She's not... Injured fatally, but she is shot. Seriously injured. The rest of the police show shows the the afterwork of that. You know, the what happens at the bank and what happened at the hospital and what happens afterward. And the rest of the show, that daughter is no longer rolling her eyes. When she looks at her mother, she looks with an adoring gaze. And she sees other kids at school and she sees them talking about their mother. And she said, You know, so a lot of people say that they would take a bullet for you, but my mother did. Jesus took everything so you didn't have to. Jesus paid the penalty for all of your sin. And a weak love is a result of a weak appreciation of what he has done for us. The more I appreciate how much I have been forgiven, that all my righteousness is a filthy rag. Me on my best day is a filthy rag in front of God. But that he, the thrice holy God, holy, 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 he forgives me. He doesn't count my trespasses against me. He doesn't give me what I deserve. That's mercy. He instead gives me what I don't deserve. That's grace. And it's a greater appreciation for the greatness of my forgiveness that fuels the white-hot passion of my worship for Him and yours. Third, cultivating great love means recalling how much I have been forgiven. All of these points are similar. Because we never graduate from the cross. We never graduate from gazing at the cross. Remembering that I'm a great sinner, but he is a great savior is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to everything in the Christian life. It's meditating on the cross that makes us people who want to live passionately for and like Christ. Now, many times we sing about that. We sing about living passionately for Christ. We sing about living passionately for Christ, living passionately like Christ. But oftentimes when we sing, we lie because we don't live that way. What is the fuel that helps us to live passionately for and like Christ? It is a constant, everyday life. Waking up in the morning, meditation on, I am a sinner in need of grace. And Christ paid the penalty for my sin so that I could walk in newness of life. And not only that, He gives me His Holy Spirit that empowers me for life now. Empowers me to love people who sometimes are more than quirky. Sometimes are unlovable but he gives me the ability to love them because he reminds me that I am loved by him who is so much greater than me. And that gives me the ability to love others who sometimes, let's be honest, irritate us. Amen? A number of years ago, I... I wrote a book called Experience the Passion of Christ, which was a meditation on the last 18 hours of Jesus' life. Then a couple of years after that, we made, uh, for three years in a row, at New Song Church, where Dan uh, was. I don't know if you guys ever went to that. We we did a a live expression of that uh, around Easter time. We created 14 stations around the church and people were able to visit and they were very tactfully involved. One of the stations involved uh, uh, meditating on Jesus before Pilate and Pilate washing his hands of Jesus' blood. Something that he couldn't do and something that we can't do. One of the ways that we tried to dramatize that was this. We had... Uh, a basin there uh, that people would come up and they would dip their hands in that basin. They had some hand towels there, white hand towels, that people would reach and they would wash their, dry their hands off. Then they would take the towel and they would throw it in a basket and they would uh, be guided by some excerpts from the book in that scene and, and meditate for a time uh, at that place. And then they would move on to the next one. What they didn't know was that we had put uh, a chemical in the towel, a chemical powder, a theatrical powder in the towel, so that when they grabbed the white towel and it mixed with the wetness of the water, it created a red dye all over their hands so that they, they viscerally could see that the blood of Christ was on their hands as well as Pilate's, that he died for their sin. Sometimes there wasn't enough powder in in them. Sometimes people weren't looking at their hands. They were reading. They moved on to another scene. There was different lighting in different scenes. And sometimes people didn't notice. But many, there were a number of people that at that point in that station, they saw the red dye on their hands. They were meditating on the sacrifice of Christ in that moment. They were being reminded of the forgiveness that Christ had offered them. And right there, in that spot, they dropped to their knees and began to cry out to God in repentance. I heard the story of one woman. She came back and told us this the next day. She went back to her car. She got in her car and she started up her car and she put her hands on the steering wheel. And it wasn't till then that she saw that her, her hands had been turned red, and then she started to weep, and she wept for 30 minutes. And worship was more special for her that week. You see, when you know that you have been forgiven much, when you remind your soul that you have been forgiven much, you become the kind of person Jesus wants you to be. You become, you become a lover you become a person who looks past other people's faults. You become a, peop- a, a person who can forgive other people. You become a person because you know that you have been forgiven much. You become a person who forgives others much and therefore loves others much and becomes a person who reflects Jesus to them because you've been reminded how much you have been forgiven by the one who is holy, holy, holy. A great evangelist in the United States once said this, and I, I, I think of this often. He said, I, Oh, how hard it is to find sinners. I would go any distance to find a, find a sinner who recognizes his need. See, that's our problem in America. We don't really think we're sinners. We think that we can add Jesus to our lives. Jesus does not want to be added to your American dream. You understand that? Jesus, you can't take Jesus and say, well, you know, I'm an American. I, I basically have things, you know, pretty much wired. Uh, I, I just need a little help. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't want to give a little bit of help. He wants to come into your life and totally overrule everything you ever thought about everything. He wants to guide you in a different way about everything in life. He wants to take command of your life. He does not tolerate being added to a life. He wants to take over our lives. And when he does, he makes us great lovers because he reminds us how much we've been forgiven, and yet he still turns to us, and he doesn't treat us as if we are still sinners. He treats us as if we're sons and daughters, royal priesthood. And he gives us significance in his kingdom. And he says that he's going to use us to change the world. And how will he do that? They will know you are my followers by how you love one another. And you become a great lover of one another by becoming a great forgiver of one another. You become a great forgiver of one another by remembering that you have been forgiven much. So may you live passionately for and like Jesus. And may you know that you are forgiven if you have trusted in Christ. May you be mesmerized by the one who forgives and may you rejoice every day as you serve him for his glory and for the joy of everyone you know. Because that's why he said to an unnamed prostitute who spoke no words but had faith in him and his ability to forgive and who knew that she was loved and so she loved much knowing how much she had been forgiven. And he released her to be a daughter of the king. He releases you to be sons and daughters of under His Lordship, to follow Him and to live passionately for and like Him. Amen? Amen. Father, we love You. There is no one here who loves You enough. We long to love You more. We thank You for our Savior. We thank you for how he has loved us and how he has forgiven us and how he has made us sons and daughters of the king. And we pray that you would make us men and women who meditate long and hard and daily and never forget that we would fuel the passion of our love for you by remembering how much we have been forgiven. We ask this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.